Ephesians chapter 4, and uh, thank you for the prayer that we won't suffer yet from information overload. Uh, I know it's that beloved post-lunch session, so we're going to try to stay mindful of that with our duration, Uh, but at least it was Jesus chicken, right? So I think it'll give you an extra jolt of ability to focus. Um, Ephesians chapter 4, before I just jump into it, um, some things have been coalescing very slowly. I'm actually quite embarrassed at how slow I grow. Snail's pace at best, imperceptible, like watching grass grow, paint dry. I'm embarrassed about the slowness of my growth. Over the course of my Christian journey, I was converted as a freshman in college. Um, through the course of reading the New Testament and some college friends who love Jesus and my now wife who uh, continually just pointed me to Christ. So from conversion to now, so 18 years old to 46 years old, there have been a series of progressions that I can now look back on that I couldn't see how cataclysmic they were. Obviously conversion, nothing's more cataclysmic. But for every real Christian, I think that we experience things that feel like a second conversion. And if you've never had the experience of how could Jesus be that wonderful and I not have known, did I even really know him before now, then I just come in to continue walking with Christ because that will happen in your soul. When it does, it's actually evidence you are converted because John 14 is happening and he said, if you love me and keep my commandments... I will manifest myself to you. I will reveal myself to you. Guess what the disciples did not say? That's all you have to offer? Like, we left everything, and we're following you, and and you're going to give us yourself? They were glad at that prospect. And so as that happens to our souls, it feels like another conversion. So conversion was one, and just coming to an understanding of a deeper realization of God's pursuing grace in my conversion. He wasn't lucky to get me on his team. He wasn't sitting around wondering what he was going to do until he got somebody as great as me to help him out with his little problem in the world. But just undeserved grace and at great cost, just a deeper understanding of the gospel, heaven's favorite mutilated for my sins and the great exchange of the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. So that penny started to drop more deeply. After that, and we can quibble over this later, I'm not even trying to be controversial, but Christian hedonism, that God is actually happy for us to be happy in him. And Jesus actually meant what he said. He said, I speak these things to you so that my joy will be in you and your joy will be pleroma, full, to the top, overflowing. He actually wants that. And that he doesn't have buyer's remorse. He's not sorry he saved me. He doesn't wish he could get out of the deal. He's actually rejoicing with shouts of joy, Zephaniah, over being happy that somebody like me is his child. And so those progressions, conversion, and God's great pursuing grace and salvation and Christian hedonism, and then as our brother gave to us so beautifully this morning, honestly one of the most beautiful exposés of Christ-saturated preaching that I've ever heard. That was fantastic uh, this morning. But Christocentric hermeneutic. Luke 24 became the center of my Bible. 
And I started to realize he meant what he said when he got up from the dead, the very first thing he did. How encouraging is this? That the first thing the risen king of the universe did when he got up from the dead was he handed two people a Bible and said, do you really want to know me? You have the same book in your lap right now that he used to reveal himself to people after he got up from the dead. And he said the whole thing's about himself. I regret. I said I'm embarrassed at how slow I grow. If I could reorder the, the progression, I would do it. But in God's providence, the way it worked with me is years after I was converted, came to appreciate the truths of God's delight in my delight in him, Christian hedonism. Years after, I was pastoring and came to a point of repentance in my preaching. I actually preached the Great Commission at our church without preaching the gospel. How do you do that? Like, that's terrible. A sweet sister, single, in her 30s, emailed me and explained to me what I had done in very gracious terms. And God used a bunch of different things, brought me to repentance. There's one more progression that I haven't told you yet that I wish would have been way back here. And part of the reason I'm here today is to try to just fast forward, if God will so be, be so pleased, our sanctification in ways that he would get us to if nobody else told us, but it might just be a little later. And it's Christ-saturated ecclesiology. His intention this may expose my biblical immaturity, so brace yourself to be underwhelmed. I believe God's doing three things in the world, three main things. In the last days, I understand that to be from the resurrection to the return of Jesus. So we're in the last days, and we have been for a while. When I read the New Testament, I see God doing three main things. He's glorifying his name. He's doing good for all of his people. That is, he is edifying them in the faith and equipping them for ministry. And he's getting the gospel to the nations. He's doing a billion other things. But when I read the New Testament, it's like over and over again. His glory, good of his people, gospel to the nations. And as far as I can tell, here comes my expose of biblical immaturity. Though he's benevolent and uses trillions of means, his primary, and I would say exclusively, as far as I see the New Testament, means of doing the big three local churches. He's using the bride of Christ visibly expressed on planet earth in local churches to maximally bring glory to his name, Ephesians 3.21, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, all generations forever and ever, amen. To do good for all of his people, Ephesians 4, equip them for ministry and edify them in the faith, and Ephesians 1 and 6, to get the gospel to the nations. 
And I could go to a ton of other passages, book of Acts, hello. He's doing that, and he's doing it in and through the exaltation of his son in the church. So now, what I want to try to do is look at one verse, and I'm going to try not to overstate the case. You know, we preachers are notorious for whatever passage we're preaching is the most this or the biggest that or the greatest whatever, right? And nothing's ever been more important than what I'm about to say because I'm the one saying it. All right, so here's overstatement that I don't think is overstatement, but I want you to take the next few minutes and test this. I think the most comprehensive one-verse summary. There's other summaries that are not in one verse only. Most comprehensive one-verse summary of Paul's entire understanding of God's purpose in the church is Ephesians 4.13. Turn your eyes there and open your soul wide to hear the word of the living God. This is the New American Standard rendering, middle of the sentence, verse 13. It starts this way. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. I'm going to read that again. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Until we all attain to the knowledge of the Son of God. Until we all attain to a mature man. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. What a sentence. Would you join me at the throne of grace? We're going to ask for God's help to understand and apply those words. Pray with me. Father, we ask that you would help us, illumined by the Holy Spirit who inspired these words, illumine our mind and our heart, and give us energy for a few more moments to think about something that is very obviously very precious to you. We want to care about what you care about. So help us to see, help us to receive, help us to believe, help us to obey. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. So for the last year and a half, in a more concentrated way, I've been thinking about ecclesiology. I've thought about that in other ways before then, but in a more concentrated way because through the connection of TCT and another ministry outlet called Media Gratier, I had the privilege of putting together a little eight-week Bible study that someday, sometime, may be available beyond the recesses of my brain um, on churches that treasure Christ. And so I just tried to collect together biblical data, Old and New Testament, to, to try to answer the question, what would that look like? What is a congregation marked by when all the people esteem the Lord Jesus in accord with the value that belongs to him? What would happen if, as Augustine said, if Christ is not treasured above all, he's not treasured at all, 
What would it look like if every single person held Jesus in the same esteem that God the Father commanded all the angels to hold him? Hebrews 1. When the firstborn came into the world, that's the incarnation, God the Father, you can go read this, turned around to heaven. And he said, for the first time in eternity, since the angels were created, they're not eternal, but since their inception, he said, all you angels worship him. So for the first time since they were created, the locus of the focus of the angels' adoration moved from heaven to earth when Jesus came here. The Father is not jealous when God the Son is exalted. He's actually glorified. Philippians 2, you know it very well. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Jesus Christ is Lord, and when that happens, it is to the glory of God the Father. The Father is thrilled when the manifold perfections of God are seen and adored in his Son. So I'm back to the question again. What would that look like in your congregation? What would it look like in Memphis? If Christ himself was seen to be the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of the nature of God. Well, I think this verse gives us a little bit of insight to that. So there's the long runway. Here's the content. A friend of mine preached on this passage in Covington, Georgia last year. Now listen to his sermon because I had the privilege of preaching at his church some months later, and I preached this passage. So I wanted to see what he said about it. Was it going to have to be clean up on aisle three? Sorry, your pastor got it wrong. Let me tell you what, how, how to get it right. Or would I be able to reiterate, oh, he did really good. Forget my sermon. Go back and listen to his. I want you to evaluate if what this pastor said was good. This is a direct quote from my friend's sermon from Covington, Georgia. What should the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, wherever it is gathered, look like? This. When people ask what kind of church they should look for, what kind of church they should raise their children in, what kind of church would strengthen their marriage? What kind of church brings the most honor and glory to God? It is this. This is the passage that you should point everyone to. Not which church is the coolest, not which church is the most trendy, not which church has the most charismatic preacher, not which church has the most flashy worship or praise band, not which church has the most awesome programming for all the different ages, not the church that has the coolest buildings, light, smoke, wonderful events that they can put on. This passage, I would say, perhaps above any other in the New Testament, gives a picture of what a healthy New Testament, Christ-centered, God-glorifying, spirit-equipped, word-centralized, missions-mobilized church is supposed to look like. Well, obviously, by my inflection, I think you can tell I heartily agree. I do believe Ephesians 4.13 is the most comprehensive single verse, one statement about what God intends for the church to look like. And I want to just take a moment and look at that with you. What is God's plan for whole congregations to be saturated with the greatness of his son? 
I want you to imagine your life is the little thimble that was on my grandmother's finger, who's now in glory, that I saw almost every time I went to her house. So there it is. That's your life. Now I want you to imagine taking that thimble, turning it upside down, and dipping it into the Mariana Trench, the deepest known part of the ocean, and how it would be engulfed and almost nobody would be even aware that it's there. It's infinitesimally small, swallowed up in the immensity of the ocean. Now, I want you to imagine taking your life as that thimble and plunging your soul into the bounty of Christ, the fullness of Christ. Now, I want you to imagine your whole congregation is not a bunch of collective individual thimbles, but it's just one collectively. And that whole congregation is turned right side up, upside down, whichever way it is, and plunged into the ocean of the fullness of Christ. Well, here's the whole message in a sentence. I believe this verse is saying that God Almighty wants your church to be as full of Jesus as Jesus is full of Jesus, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. He wants you to know that fullness. Indeed, the Lord Jesus did die for you. I said earlier, he's not sorry that he did that. He has no buyer's remorse. There's nothing you can do to make him like you less. There's nothing you can do to make him like you more. He loves you with agape love. But the New Testament's also clear in some mysterious way. I think we tread on the precipice of mystery. We don't see a lot beyond this, but we do at least see this. He also shed his blood for the congregation that you belong to. Acts chapter 20, shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That's the elders of the church at Ephesus. When Paul wrote to that same congregation, the letter of Ephesians, he commands the husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. The blood of Jesus dripping from his mutilated body on a splintered cross outside of Jerusalem was paying for the church that you pastor or belong to. That's amazing. And that will absolutely temper the way we relate to her. Now, I have four daughters. And if I put them into your care and go on a long journey and come back and find that you've dressed them up like a prostitute and painted them with makeup like a prostitute, it's not going to go very well with you and me upon my return. How might the Father... Think about those who do anything that parades his son in worldly garb when beauty unimaginable, satisfaction beyond what we can calculate is already available to us in him without our sinister efforts to try to add to him. When I was in kindergarten in North Carolina, 
I proved early that I wasn't the sharpest pencil in the box. And I maintained that reputation all the way until today. And in show and tell, all my friends were bringing the most amazing project that they built at home or something they had made or some ridiculous, expensive item that they owned. And they're in show and tell. And, you know, when it comes to my turn, I just bring something that's probably broken and nobody's impressed with. And I can remember something of the feeling of jealousy, even now, of my six-year-old self compared to all my peers and all the snazzy stuff they had. And I didn't really have that feeling as repeatedly again in my life until I became a pastor. And I can remember on really two ends of the spectrum. On one hand, wanting really badly to have something impressive for the people. And, by God's grace, sometimes having biblical sightings of the glory of God in Christ and being grieved that so many times in my own life and in our church and in so many other churches were basically a kindergarten show-and-tell classroom letting everybody see how unimpressed we are with Jesus by talking about everything but him. So, if you don't get anything else out of this, get this. God will never be unimpressed with the perfect reflection of his glory beaming from the face of his son. He has from eternity before you and I or anything else was created been exuberantly delighted in the perfect reflection of his glory in the face of his son by the power of the spirit. He didn't create because he needed companionship. He created largely for reasons known only to himself. We know a few of them in scripture, but not all of them. But some of the ones we know is that he invited us into the enjoyment of God. And far from needing us to give him companionship, salvation is a being set free from our myopic self-centeredness by the death of heaven's favorite so that we can, through faith in his risen victory, join God in the happy much-making of God. He sets you free from you so that you can join him in what is really satisfying. Him. Is that not what this verse is about? There's several parts to it. I'm not going to just give you exposition straight down the line, but I will draw your attention to them straight down the line until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Paul had pastored the church at Ephesus for three and a half years, sometime before he wrote them this letter. He knew their names and faces. He knew their children. He knew which ones had gone wayward. He knew marriages that had dissolved in divorce. He knew spouses who had died. He knew, he knew these people. And he said, in commandeering the preceding verses, that when the Lord Jesus Christ ascended on high, 
and started dispensing gifts to his churches from heaven's throne, pastors, teachers, evangelists, you know the passage, so that we would be built up in Christ, parentheses, Jesus is the most Jesus-centered person in your church. Jesus gave gifts to his churches so that his churches would be built up in Jesus. That's verse 12. And so that we all would be unified in the faith. You've got to have the same common denominator to be unified like that. And the faith he's talking about is in verses 1 to 7. Pursue the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all is in all. You know the passage. And you might be thinking, well, if you belong to the church that I belong to, you would understand it's not so easy to love all those people and be that unified with them. To which I want to say, touche, but the question is not how hard are they to love. The question is, what supply has God given for you and I to be able to obey that command? And the answer is in verse 7. In accordance with the measure of Christ's gift. Pursue unity according to the supply that Jesus paid for in his gift. What's that verse talking about? That's the cross. When the omnipotent king of the universe became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him, or this is a verse that I do not claim to understand. I'm stupefied by it. Romans chapter 8, verse 3, when it says, speaking of the cross of Christ, what we couldn't do through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That's the word damned. That's what happened to Jesus. That's the Galatians-type language. He became a curse for us. Meaning, he took all the Old Testament curses. Think of Ebal and Gerizim and the shoutings back and forth. He took all the curses of the law so that you could get all the blessings of the law, though you deserved all the curses of the law and he deserved all the blessings of the law. The gift he gave, this is, we just sang this. This is, this is deep theology. He exculpated all your crimes. You're exonerated in the sight of God. Not only can God not condemn you, he cannot do that. There is no condemnation left for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it's not because God swept it under the rug. It's because Jesus absorbed it all, all, all of it. There's none left. But not only does he not want to condemn you, he cannot do it. There's not any left. And the gift Christ gave his life on the cross, verse 7, is the supply that is right now available to you to be unified with every single person in your church. That's the beginning of verse 13. That's just the first little phrase. But it also says, until we all attain to the knowledge of the Son of God. I'm going to just breeze by that and say, 
Everything that is true about Jesus is what God intends for all the people in your church to know. Oh, that's why, according to our first message today, we proclaim him. But then this phrase, to a mature man, I'm not sure how yours renders it, a perfect man, a complete man, it's the Greek word teleos. In, perfect, complete, mature, whole, until we all attain to this deep teleos maturity. It's actually the exact same word used the exact same way by the exact same human author in Colossians 1.28. We proclaim Christ that we may present every man teleos in Christ. It's the fullness of Jesus, all of his maturity. Remember when the Apostle Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia with whom he was not very happy? And he said to them, I'm again in labor pains with you. Birth pains. This is the man talking about childbirth. He's like, it's like that. It's this agonizing labor. So that Christ will be formed in you. That's the goal. That's what Paul's talking about here, mature man. So unity of the faith. You have the supply of the gift of Jesus, verse 7, to have it. Knowledge of the Son of God. You have gifts from heaven to help us know it. That's pastors, teachers, evangelists, all those. To know Christ in all of his fullness. To be built up in maturity. And then I just want to land an accent mark on this last phrase. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. I said ecclesiology was a very late progression in my very slow Christian development. But I love you enough to tell you not one syllable of this sentence was written to you. Similarly, not one word or verse or paragraph, pericope, chapter, section of Corinthians or Romans Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, the Thessalonian letters. None of Hebrews, not one verse of Revelation was written to you. All of those letters were written to entire local churches, explicitly demonstrated by the material in them. Now, I'm saying you're a believer, and of course, by extension, yes, it is written to you, and absolutely you should benefit from your own personal meditations on those, but I'm saying that to say this. I want to underline what I believe is a radical biblical truth. You need your church more than they need you. You can stop being a pastor right now, and the church will be fine. But you cannot leave a church and not be part of one. Here it comes. And have any of the blessings that are spoken about in 13 letters of your New Testament. They're written to churches not individuals. Do you want, now, can you feel this stack on top of itself? To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Would you like that in your life? Embed your life in a Jesus-intoxicated church. That's how you do it. This church at Ephesus was more than a little blessed. The Apostle Paul, Timothy, and the beloved disciple John were their pastors. Pretty good lineup. 
and they left their first love. This church left their first love. This church. Do you see? Sean mentioned it earlier. I say it all the time. I'm a broken record. Lord, help me get new analogies. If we get one click off True North, it's not obvious five yards from now when we're shooting an arrow and miss the bullseye by one of the concentric circles. But if we're one click off True North and we're shooting 50 years, then the target's not even in view anymore. And it's so easy to get distracted from true north, from Christ. I don't know what you think would strike fear in the heart of the Apostle Paul. I mean, this man was beaten multiple times. He was lowered in a basket out of a wall at night. He was chased by mobs. He was stoned almost to death. I mean, they literally drug his lifeless body. They thought they killed him and threw him in a ditch outside of Lystra. He stood back up and went right back in and said, who wants to be an elder? <laughs> and people signed up. I don't know what you think would strike fear in that man's heart. But he told the church at Corinth, I am afraid. What would make the eminent apostle afraid? That as the serpent deceived Eve, your mind will be led astray from simple, pure devotion to Jesus. So when Paul says things to that church, like I determined into nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, that's two things, not one. That's the glorious person and gospel labors of the king of the universe. When he said that, he wasn't saying, so I'm going to forget all the stuff I learned under Gamaliel. I'm going to throw away my Old Testament and just say, Jesus, Jesus, crucified Jesus, Jesus, crucified Jesus. That's not what he's saying. He's the one that wrote to that church. You want to know the good news? You want to know the first importance? You want to know numero uno? Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and raised the third day according to the Scriptures. And I don't know if you've read Acts 28 lately, but when he's under house arrest for two and a half years and people are coming to him day and night in his lodging, it says, if you think this day's been long, try the Apostle Paul on for size, from morning until evening, he explained to them from the law of Moses that Jesus was the Christ. So this measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Jesus is what God wants in every one of his churches. And then Paul commences, this is where I'll close, to telling them they didn't just have Paul and Timothy and John. I mean, unless you can help me see something here that I can't yet see, Paul tells them they actually had Jesus. It wasn't Paul telling them about Jesus and Timothy and John. Now, you can help me because I may be wrong. But I want you to see verse 20. Is the word about in the sentence? It's not in the original Greek. But you did not learn Christ in this way. 
In verse 21, does it say about? If indeed you have heard him and been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus, Paul is indicating that Jesus showed up in that church. And Jesus let them learn him. They knew him. They heard him. They were taught in him. Hebrews chapter 2 says the exact same thing. That in the gathered assembly of the church, the Lord Jesus comes in and does two things. Proclaims God's name and sings God's praise. He's the preacher. He's the song leader. You want to know why? There got to be more reasons than this, but definitely not less. You will never not need a mediator. If you ever do an end around Jesus to get to God, you will be incinerated. You will be Nadab and Abihu. For endless eternities, the mediator's not going away. We always come to the one true triune God through his son. All of our preaching, all of our praying, all of our church fellowship, encouragement, unity of the faith, knowing of the Son of God, growing in maturity, measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Jesus, all of that is mediated only and always through Jesus. And so, I go back to that initial question, what would it look like to be part of a local church where everybody is fascinated with what fascinates God the Father. Well, Tyndale New Testament commentary, they seem like smart people, said, whether the goal can be realized in this life or not, the goal of verse 13, is irrelevant. The point is that the Christian is to press forward with no lesser ambition than this. This is human life as it is intended to be, measured only by all that we can understand of the human life of Christ himself. Something's happening in your church that's bigger than your preaching. It's not less than that. But it's all the people who are filled with the same inestimable treasure, Jesus himself, verse 15 is happening, verse 16 is happening. As people are speaking truth in love, what's happening to them? They're growing up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. That's what a Christ-treasuring church looks like. What else is happening in your church? Verse 16, the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, something happens. Causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. What's happening here is the preacher does his God-ordained assignment, and that is indispensable to any healthy church. Just preach Christ from every passage of Scripture. Yes. But this is bigger than that. God's using the preaching, and he's using the speaking in love, and he's using the proper working of each individual part, but everybody's pulling the rope in the same direction. So my concluding question is this. Maybe I don't know what it looks like. And I keep asking, what would it look like? What would it look like? I think it looks like verse 13, but 
you know, in front of my eyes, maybe I don't know. But I would ask this. Think of a member of your church who's been there for at least enough time to give some evaluation of their spiritual health. Ten years? Think of a saint that's been in your church for five years. Are they more fascinated with the glory of God in the face of Christ today than they were a decade ago? And are the people around them similarly more attracted to Christ? And by compounding effect, is that circle of influence also having circles around all the people with the same compounding influence? I think that Paul thinks that's what New Testament Christianity is. I don't think he thinks there's another version. I think he thinks that to live as Christ and die is gain. And I think he thinks that he's been crucified with Christ and Christ lives in him. And according to Philippians 1, he's really happy if Christ is exalted in his body. But both of the verses I just quoted to you were not written to individual Christians, but churches. I think Paul thinks, and therefore I believe Paul under the Holy Spirit, I believe God thinks that what God wants in our church is unity of the faith and a knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ in all the people. That is that. Gospel-centered church life. The whole church saturated in the fullness of Jesus. Well, Maybe next year or another conference, if I get to come back, I'll tell you the other things that we're, we didn't get to. Lord bless you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would cause our congregations to look like Ephesians 4.13. You know what that means, and you know that Jesus died and rose again to purchase those privileges for our churches. So for your glory, for our good, for the advance of the gospel in the world, we ask that our churches would look like verse 13 of Ephesians 4. We pray this in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen.